This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard. What's this, fam? It's Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm Gina E.D., and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. We have another special episode in the end of our talks month is going to be phenomenal guys and we may actually drop this a little bit after july but hey who's counting everyone loves talks right so we have another one of the friends of the pot coming back to chat with us and this time we're talking about the drug that most people say wrong i'm probably going to say wrong you probably <laughs> said it wrong as well i'm gonna try to be you know extra you know bupropion bupropion or Really well, Butrin. We've been talking about that today, but I got my man Tom Mack coming back with us. Go ahead again. If people didn't listen to the first episode you had, go ahead and give them just a quick intro for you, and let's dive right into this thing. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Jimmy. Uh, my name is Tom Mack. Uh, some of you guys follow me on Twitter at Tommy Tox. Uh, I just finished up my toxicology fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I'm sticking around currently to do some things with danger noodles, aka rattlesnakes. Um, and so I'm here today to, to talk some more about tox and um, stoked to be here. And I mean, you can't say bupropion, bupropion. You know, if you say well, butrin, I'm going to say ill butrin. There's nothing good about it, but uh, however you go with it, potato, potato, I guess. That's dope. Again, again, thank everybody for kind of coming on. Quick, quick reminders again for you, you guys that are uh, just following us. A lot of what we've been building over the last few years at the Empower Arts Conference has been phenomenal. We're in the process of building that right now. We have some pretty cool things we're planning on doing. If you want to know, reach out to me. I'll let you know. So again, we're going to be building something pretty cool here. Uh, so go check us out at empower slash EmpowerRx slash conference.com. Uh, if you don't know where that is or just Google EmpowerRx, we're the only one. And then when coming to what we're moving forward with doing, again, my focus is on education and our, our sister company, Pharmacy and Acute Care University is helping people when it comes to continuing education, board certification prep. But again, you guys can check that out. I want to jump into Wellbutrin or AKA Aobutrin. Uh, so we'll dive right into it. Um, it's bupropion or ilbutrin or whatever you want to call it. It's like it's one of those things people in toxicology love to hate. Um, you know, so it's an antidepressant. It also gets used in smoking sensation, uh, cessation, sorry, uh, weight loss, uh, ADHD. It's been used for compulsive eating disorders. Uh, mechanistically, it's a weak reuptake inhibitor, inhibitor of uh, dopamine, norepinephrine. Its structure is kind of similar. To, it's basically a substituted cathinone, you know, also known as bath salts, or you can think of it as an amphetamine with a keto group debated position for all the chem nerds out there. Um, it's also why it commonly trips um, the UDS positive for amphetamine. So uh, you have that there too. But if you wonder why people feel good on this stuff, well, who wouldn't feel good on amphetamines? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this stuff came around in the late 80s. Uh, it was produced in an immediate release formulation. They found that there was a small group of people that were having new onset seizures at therapeutic doses. It was something it was less than 1% of people. Um, so the FDA said, well, okay, you guys got to slow your roll. They took it off the market. The company went back. You know, They invested all that money into it, and they reformulated it. 
And so uh, they reformulate it and we have a sustained release formulation and we also have an extended release formulation now too, um, which seemed to kind of lower that seizure risk that was worrying everybody. So again, that's a good background to kind of get it, get us going with this. Because again, I had a patient today that was on and she was screaming, I need my Wellbutrin. It makes me feel well. I was like, oh, that's, that's a good marketing tactic to kind of go from that. But of course, we, we, we definitely have some issues. So again, we know how it works from a, a traditional standpoint. But then you mentioned, again, let's get toxic here. You know, let's kind of jump in, into that. Let's talk about toxicity. And so how does you know, bupropion or albutrin becomes harmful in these overdose situations. And can you kind of talk about some of the science behind it, the method mechanisms behind all that? Yeah, I can give you what I know. Um, so we have the seizure risk stuff, and I can't really give you a definitive mechanism for that. I'm really sorry. Um, but it may be similar as to, you know, when you have folks who have large, large ingestions of amphetamines, um, or cocaine, stimulants, things along those lines, um, you basically just get uh, large amounts of catecholamines in the CNS strain up excitatory action. Um, and then, you know, we know bupropion has several metabolites. So people have looked at whether it's, is it the bupropion parent metabolite? Is it the active metabolite uh, hydroxybupropion? Um, but we don't know which one's truly the culprit for these seizures. Um, and these seizures are really, you know, they're, they're weird because they still, they can occur, you know, they can be conjured up by taking one or two extra of your daily dose. If, you know, your daily dose is 300 to 450 milligrams, it only takes one or two extra to really get you there. Um, and, you know, now we have these different formulations. We have the SR formulation, which has, you know, a half-life of about 12 hours. And then we have the extended release, which is about 21 hours. Um, typically at these, you know, doses, when you're just getting like one or two, um, you know, extra from your therapeutic misadventure or whatever, the seizures tend to be, you know, they, they tend to terminate on their own. They're not as bad. When you start getting into a couple of grams, you're increasing that risk for repeated seizures. Um, and they, you know, now we're using more benzos, um, and if you're getting even higher doses than that, and like, let's say we'll throw a number out there greater than nine grams. Um, now you're talking the potential for fatal outcomes because now you can get these repeated seizures that will happen over and over and over again. that can be hard to treat um, and they can lead into these like really violent malignant arrhythmias. Um, but I'll stop here just for a second, just because, you know, you know, we talk about these seizures things and it's like the big thing we talk about with this stuff. Um, but when we get into these overdose situations, it's probably like, when it depends on the literature where you look, about 30% of the time. That's a pretty big amount, and it's definitely not a small number, but around 30% of the time, it's pretty likely. Um, and then it does some other, like, really weird stuff, too. Um, I've seen it, you know, I've had patients that look profoundly anticholinergic, and we didn't know what the exposure was, and we gave FISO, and it, like, patient did not seize and it's it's beyond me, like the fact that that didn't happen. I was like, whew, you know, but we get this like we get this, you know, GC mass back a couple of days later. I'm like, hey, it was appropriate. Like, oh, my. <laughs> um, so you're like, wow. Um, and I've had patients that look really serotonergic, you know, and this drug doesn't really have any appreciable serotonergic activity. You know, they're having hyperreflexia, they're having clonus, they're having you know, all these things. So bupropion, you know, it just has this like 
you know, this tricking, taunting, ambiguous behavior. And it's one of the, you know, there's reason number nine why I hate it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we get into this other thing. The other big concern that a lot of folks are, are really worried about is cardiovascular toxicity. And, you know, Jimmy may have like read the case reports, maybe, may have even seen them. And even for our listeners out there, they, they may have, you know, had one before. They're awful. Um, but they're pretty rare when you think about it, when you look at the numbers, but you need a very large dose in the right person at the right time. And they're awful because once they take off, they are nasty, they are a train in movement, and they are hard to stop. Um, we're talking about hypotension, refractory to, you know, combination and, and large doses of norepi, epi, dasopressin, phenylephrine, and people start throwing things like methylene blue, hydroxylcobalamin, you know, you know, everybody hates albumin, and then that gets thrown in there too. It's just, you know, the cardiovascular collapse seems unstoppable. Um, and then, you know, you know, if you, if you didn't have that, you know, the other way it can go is it can go into like very malignant ventricular arrhythmia. And so, you know, how does that happen? How do, what's the, how does this cardiac toxicity come? Um, so the QT can become prolonged and that's just due to the inward rectifying potassium channel. Um, it's not terribly potent and we don't really see a whole lot of torsades, um, in these, uh, overdoses. So it's kind of uncommon from that standpoint, but the QRS does prolong and that's, what's usually driving these like kind of like horrid fatal arrhythmias. Now, like, you know, we talked about in the last episode with toxic alcohols, we're talking about bicarb, you know, when you see that QRS prolonging and tox, we think bicarb all right let's give some bicarb we'll push some bicarb um and so we want to deal with that sodium channel blockade and that's how we do that in talks um when these ods started becoming more frequent as time you know went on through the 90s into the thousands um what they started to see was bicarb wasn't doing anything for the qrs it wasn't shortened so what happened and so, you know, when you want to figure out anything in tox, you start, you know, experimenting on animals and killing animals. Um, so that's what they did. So they, they went to the, the bench top. They did an animalized study where they took an isolated guinea pig heart and they just they threw a ton of bupropion at it. Um, and so what the study suggested is, is these things called cardiac gap junctions um, specifically a, a specific protein called connexin 43 was being inhibited and blocked. Um, and that was responsible for this effect. And so everybody's like, all right, huzzah, we have the answer. Um, and however, there, there was another study that came out shortly, you know, uh, later, years later after, and it just showed this not to be the case. And so in the midst of all this, we've also had people that have given bicarb and they have seen the QRS shorten. And so it's like, okay, we <laughs> we still don't really know. Um, I've certainly had cases where I've seen it work, and I've had cases where it doesn't. And so this is its ambiguity and its pathway of toxicity. And you know, like, it's another reason why I hate it. So you know, you asked for me to give you the mechanism, and I gave you a big I don't know. <laughs> so sorry, man. But it's it's good to know that because I think sometimes we like to think that oh we know this stuff and we don't like how does Tylenol work oh we, oh, oh oh well there's a few things oh 
kind of like Joe Dirt. It's like, why are rainbows good? I don't know. Just is like, yeah. Here's one of those things, and it seems to me is like I like to categorize medications based off like other things. Like it seems to me like you know, Wellbutrin is like you know the 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 you know the CNS version of like valproic acid because it's like super dirty everywhere we don't necessarily know how or it's like an amio it's like a mixture of like amio and valproic acid just dirty everywhere so it's my way to think of like hey i had a nurse ask me what do you mean the drug is dirty and i was like oh yeah i probably should explain what i mean by that <laughs> but it's cool to kind of know kind of the, the talks of that stuff and you mentioned it a little bit but like some key things that come in we don't have talks right at bedside with us you know what are some key clinical presentations that you can think of that can make you at least, I should say, make you think that it could be potentially this? Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's a couple of things. Um, and, you know, keep in mind of what the drug is. Like you said, it's it's dirty. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a dirty amphetamine when you think about it. So regarding these seizures, you know, a lot of folks have done a lot of studies, you know, whether it's poison center studies or whatever you have. Um, there's some isolated symptoms to watch out for, and they may clue you that a seizure is about to hit. And so uh, some of those is tachycardia greater than 100 beats per minute. They're showing any kind of tremors, agitation, um, you know, hallucinations, altered mental status, uh, QTC greater than 500. There's been a bunch of things, but clinically, you know, just when you think about it, we're causing increased CNS, you know, just excitation. And so think about, you know, your vital signs. So like I said, your heart rate, tremors, agitation, those things, that can tell you that a potential seizure is on its way, you know, just increasing that. When we're talking about warning shots from the cardiovascular toxicity um, that might be on the way, it's, well, as pointed out we, earlier, we talked about the QRS and QT prolongation can be a sign that a cardiovascular event could or might happen. And remember, cardiac toxicity is very likely to be due in the case where you have a very, very large ingestion, like several and several grams of propion. And there was a really nice study uh, recently out in ClinTox that Simpson et al. published. And they looked at National Poison Center data system. And what they found was, you know, folks with older age, seizure, a wide QRS, and a prolonged QTC was, you know, was associated with adverse cardiovascular events following intentional repropriate ingestions. Um, you know, both these things that we have for whether it's seizure or cardiovascular tox, it's the, kind of the best of what we have right now. Um, and that's kind of a mix of, of, you know, what I kind of consider when I'm looking at these folks. Absolutely. So I think it's good to just kind of have some picture of that too. Just that when they first come in. So it's like, okay, we, we, we might be getting a seizure coming up here pretty soon. So what any, anything else we can see before we start moving into like, uh, how do we treat it? Um, other than like, you know, I always hype, harp on things like history and talks, you know, get as much information as you can. And, you know, what I want to know in the history with these substances is, you know, when did the ingestion occur? How much did they take? what was the formulation and the formulation is key so you can check the last refill um sometimes there's bottles sometimes there's refill dates um, but we want to get an idea if this is going to be a large ingestion or not and then where are we in this potential timeline of toxicity and you know while i'm trying to sort the history out you know we're getting iv access we're getting them on the cardiac monitor we're monitoring their vitals you know, get an EKG, send off, you know, it's always reasonable, send off a, a metabolic panel, always, always, and always in tox. I always harp on this, you know, get a, a, an acetaminophen level and a salicylate level, 
you always check for those in intentional ingestions, start maintenance IV fluids, and then just start reading on ABCs. You know, talk about airway, breathing, circulation, start simple and, and start with what you're seeing with the patient in front of you. Um, you know, we do have some specific therapies and I'm guessing you want to hear about those next. Absolutely. Because I think that the biggest thing people read about that they're commonly, I think the most wrong about more frequently is going to be gastric decontamination. Like it's a cool thing for us. We want to do all these different components and the time frame is, you know, debated amongst toxicologists about, you know, is it 30 minutes? Is it an hour? Is it two? Is it four? I don't know. I just call a tox and you tell me, Hey, should I, should I spurt this brown, this black, this black charcoal down this person's throat or do something else? So Talk to us about the, the, the gastric decontamination. It's, it's a cool thing, and I think it's something we should know. What should we do with these patients? Yeah, so GI decon is like one of those things that, you know, in theory, it sounds really great, and it sounds like it's the thing that is the answer. And, you know, when you look at, you know, we've studied activated charcoal for years and years and years, and, you know, there's just not a lot of compelling evidence to say we should be giving it every single time because it does the right thing every single time. Um, if you want to, you know, hear a, a brief cool story about where did activated charcoal come from? It was a pharmacist that invented this stuff. Mm. And so he wanted to test this stuff out. And so in front of a group of peers, he essentially ingested a bunch of strychnine <laughs> followed by activated charcoal. He did not die. Um, so that's where we got, you know, Leave it to a pharmacist to do some baller stuff. <laughs> but did you die? That's <laughs> where it die? came from. And he did not die. Um, so when we're thinking about you know GI contamination and timing, you're bringing up all these great points. You know, we you know I talked about the different formulations too. So we have these sustained release, we have these extended release formulation, and with large ingestions that we talk about toxicokinetics, which are just the kinetics of the drug, the change in you know a toxic overdose. Things be, they get rules get thrown out the window. So this is unpredictable. The toxicity can be prolonged and persistent. But like, let's say you know you have a fairly like you, you have a fairly large ingestion in front of you. It's massive. We're talking higher gram amounts. You know, let's say once again we're talking about greater than nine grams and beyond. And this ingestion occurred within the you know the last you know couple of few hours, two or three hours. You know, gastric decontamination should be considered. You know, with with activated charcoal, plus or minus whole bowel irrigation. If you're going to do activated charcoal, you need to make sure your patient has a functioning GI tract. There's no concerns for obstruction. They're protecting their airway, and most importantly, the patient has to be willing to take this as well. And you have to remind yourself that if this was an intentional ingestion to harm themselves, you're you're telling them they have to ingest this this really gross, nasty stuff. Um, so you have to have all those things. Um, and the last thing you want to be dealing with, with the patient, you know, that's aspirated a bunch of charcoal into the lungs. This is not good. This has led to complications and this has led to, to deaths in some patients. Uh, so you got to be careful. Um, and then we have whole bowel irrigation that can be considered too. And that's a ton of fluid. We're talking like a liter and a half or two liters, up to two liters an hour has been done. That's a lot of fluid. But if you're going to be doing activated charcoal, a couple of key points that I always like to throw out there is give the first dose with sorbitol. Um, we know that sorbitol is hyperosmolar, and that's going to get the GI tract moving. And that's what we want in this case. So I usually I will give a dose with sorbitol. If I give activated charcoal, one of the things I like to do is pre-treat with an antiemetic because once we said the last thing we want to do is to have something come up that we don't want come up and go into the lungs. So 
whatever your antiemetic choice is, I like to give something like that um, to avoid this vomiting and aspiration scenario. And then make sure the head of the bed is elevated. They're sitting up. Um, this is, you know, all part of what you need to pay attention to, the little fine details. And then, you know, if you have these large injections, we talk about multiple dose activated charcoal. They do advocate, some folks do in gold drinks, uh, they do mention, you know, multi-dose activated charcoal. Um, and what you would do with those following doses is you do them without sorbitol, um, and then you can space them out every six to eight hours and you might be giving anywhere from one to two to three extra doses. It depends on the toxicologist and the situation that you have. Um, and then with the activated charcoal, you can mix it with juice, you can mix it with soda. I think there was a group of pharmacists who did a study back in the day and it, it turned out that, what was it? It was Fresco. It was like really, it worked really well with this stuff. Um, put it in a cup, put a cap or a lid on the cup and give them a straw, you know, they don't need to see the black sludge um, yep. and try to make this, you know, a positive experience so you can get them to actually get the stuff down. Um, and then on to whole bowel irrigation. I call it the wet and wild um, a few <laughs> times. Uh, it's basically a way to clear out the GI tract, uh, flush the bucrocrine out is what we're trying to do here. And as I said earlier, it can be a lot of fluid at some point. Um, it may be too much for the patient and they, they may vomit. That's your cue to, to back off and slow down uh, on the intake with that. Um, and, and the other, I can't mention, make sure you have this. I can't say this. Uh, this is a very important thing. Make sure you have a bedside commode, okay? Yeah. Um, things are going to have to be coming out. Otherwise, if you do not have a bedside commode, you're going to have a very upset nurse with you. Um, so make sure that that is present. Um and the way we kind of like titrate, you know, is to basically clear a fluid, clear fluids in, clear fluids out. And that's, you know, what we're looking for in the end game when we're trying to flush those out. But, you know, like I said, uh, we have these modalities. I, I wish I could tell you that we have great mortality data in front of us. But if you have a very large and dangerous exposure in front of you and, you know, this, these are treatments that, you know, hey, you know, we might as well get this a shot. Slowly. I think that one of the things I, I always ask and I say, hey, is there a cutoff for you? Like I always ask, what is the cutoff for activated charcoal? Like what if, you, if it's four hours and you they saw the person taking you have a confirmed four hours or three hours and 56 minutes. Is that you're like, ah, go ahead. Or is it like, absolutely not, because I've seen two opposite ends of the spectrum from toxicology. What's your like, what is the window for you? I know, you know two hours, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within two hours is quite reasonable. Um, when I'm thinking about a very large ingestion, I'm probably okay with within four to six hours. Um, and, and, you know, there are some toxicologists that will go further out. And, you know, when you get these folks to get really hypotensive and you're jamming all these pressors on them, right, and all these inotropes, you know, they're not perfusing their bowels. So at some point they have a whole bunch of drug in their gut okay. slowly releasing. And since they don't have good perfusion to their gut, you know, this stuff is just sitting there. Um, as soon as perfusion does get better, what happens is, is the toxicity comes rip roaring back around again, because now you got all this drug that's leaching out. Um, there's been some folks, you know, that will advocate maybe later on giving a dose, but I would say within, you know, six hours and we're talking big, big dose um yeah it's you know you're gonna get a different answer from every toxicologist yeah. so yeah i think just having having the variability to say okay we can do this this data is not great you know across the board um but we it could it be something that could be beneficial can it hurt if you have a patient that's awake 
sitting up. You have the staff. You, you have enough of the drug there. Is it going to hurt? Personally, I haven't seen as many issues in the right patient. So about the right patient, I'm recommending it. Um, even to the where I have some toxicologists like, oh, it's, it's been an hour or two. I'm like, fam, it's not going to hurt. So again, we can do everything else, but I want to throw some activated charcoal on there. Just to, again, I we we saw the guy get take the drug, so it's one of those things I want to look at. Yeah, and I, I've I've had colleagues cases where you know they've had deaths, and you know when they go through autopsy, we know that you know bupropion and these formulations can produce a ghost shell in your feces. So you know that you may see the ghost capsule, but there's actually no drug in it. Um, I've had you know a toxicology colleague that said you know they inspected the bowel afterwards and they pulled out a ton of bupropion, and there was plenty of drug in these things still. So. Yeah. You know, that's why, you know, it depends on which toxicologist you talk to, because it depends on what case they actually had and, and they had a really bad outcome. So, yeah. Absolutely. So we really hit that that big part. That was intrigued about it. I think that's controversial. You know, when yeah. we start thinking about the start moving into like the specific treatments, can you discuss any specific, not necessarily antidote, but treatment that you would use in managing these patients and what considerations should we bear in mind when using them? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I got two that I immediately think of. One drug. Um, first one is mean cardiac toxicity or hypotension is going on, and you've been running impressive doses of inotropes and vasopressors. And so, using intralipid or twenty percent lipid that you'll have in the pharmacy, um, the theory of this benefits from anesthetic toxicity, which it works really good for, primarily bupivacaine. Um, the thought is, is that the source of the fuel of the shocked heart has had this pathway of energy metabolism inhibited or blocked by the overdose. This part prefers lipids as an energy substrate at baseline. By giving lipid, it's thought that it provides the starved heart with that preferred energy substrate. The other hand of this, or the other mechanism that's been kind of teased out, is you may have heard this the term called lipid sink pathway or lipid sink theory. And this is basically in the process of which the lipid is sequestering the drug away from the potential site of toxicity. And this is in the event that you have a very lipophilic substance or a lipophilic drug um, that you can look up. You know, you can go uh, look for a drug's log P and that will give you an idea of its lipophilicity. And the larger the number, the more lipophilic it is. Um, but, you know, when you look at these things, you know, we don't have like in tax, we don't have a lot of great reports. We know it works really well for, you know, anesthetics, toxicity, but, you know, there's been a lot of reports of bupropion. It is advocated for it um, in certain circumstances, as I mentioned before. Um, but we have to recall, you know, you know, uh, reporting bias or case report bias where we get these positive case reports or say, hey, it worked really well in my patients. But, you know, for those like 10 or 20, you know, case reports that was good in, there was probably a thousand other cases where it didn't work out for the patient. So intralipid gets reserved as kind of a last line option. Um, and it's probably, you know, your only option if you don't have next treatment that I'm about to talk about. Um, so the next treatment we talk about, it isn't a drug, and and no, it's it's not going to church and praying. Um, it's <laughs> you know the next option is VA ECMO, and this is for the patient that's exhausted all these drugs, all of these like quote unquote antidotes. 
Promote gives the opportunity to augment support heart and lungs to oxygenate and circulate blood. And it does this as a bridge to your own body's, you know, metabolizing and eliminating the bupropion from your system. And that's, you know, the theory of how this all works is as the drug is being eliminated, the requirements for, you know, all these inotropes and pressors, you know, these are, these are decreasing and then eventually the ECMO can be deemed and stopped. Um, if you have a patient that you expect to potentially get this sick and you believe it is a massive ingestion, one of the things that I consider off the bat is, you know, consider, do I need to transfer this patient to a center that has these capabilities? Um, cause I would tell you, it's very difficult to transport them when they're really sick and, you know, you have helicopter coming. Um, if you have ECMO at your facility, give the ECMO team the heads up, like, Hey, we have this serious ingestion. Um, and asking them, you know, each facility is going to have different criteria for starting ECMO for cannulating the patient and getting them started. So it's always good to have that conversation with them um, before things hit. Um, I've had you know, patients die, like, you know, en route to, to trying to get to an ECMO facility. I've had them die in a helicopter pad. This is, these are appropriate exposures, too. I'm not talking about all my toxic exposures. Like, I hate bupropion because it's, you know, I've lived in the Northeast, the Midwest. And, and now the Southwest and bupropion just keeps following me around everywhere. Um, and, you know, I've had one successful patient that was in a, a younger patient that, that got started on ECMO probably around eight to 10 hours after the exposure. And they made it out with zero neurological sequelae, which is that that's a rare win and a rare finding for me, because when you talk about ECMO, um, you know, I won't go in, into what it is, the specifics of it, but for those of you who know what it is, and for those of you who don't, go go take a look, go read up on it. It's a very invasive thing to do, and there's a lot of risks that do come with it, but it is a potential, you know, this is a potential last line therapy that may um, work. Absolutely. So again, I, I've, I've finally got to a shop where we're cannulating people in the ED now. So it's like, it's just wow how, how crazy things can, can get. And this is something that people, when it's a big toxic overdose and it's like, hey, you know, we have talks on board. We have different people here. We have us at the bedside. So something that we have to keep in mind and say, I know it's not necessarily our place, but again, this is what we've seen. We have a, a little bit of uh, data with this. So talk to talks, but I think we should probably have conversations. So that's usually how I play these scenarios. So, hey, it maybe should be a conversation with a young, healthy person that's like a couple hours out. So it's definitely something to look into. Now we mentioned ECMO and, 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 and lipids. The biggest thing that everyone loves to talk about is the seizure component. Can you just very briefly just throw again seizure management, and then let's kind of jump into some of the some of the patient monitoring and supportive care. We can shut it down for today. Yeah, sure. Um, seizures are simple. GABA A agonists, the first line. We love them tox. So whatever your flavor uh, of, of benzo or whatever you like to use, start with those. If you start to see these symptoms like the tachycardia, the tremors, the agitation. You know, this seems to be the hint that the seizure might become my style practices. Is if I start to see this develop, I like to cut it off before it happens. Um, so I'll give a little bit of benzo to turn them down a little bit. So I usually try like one to two milligrams of IV lorazepam or two to five milligrams of midazolam. This dose is small enough that whether it's uh, the appropriate effect or you have a situational anxiety from someone, you know, from being in the hospital under the circumstances of self-harm, you know, you're not going to snow the patient, but it's enough that in, e in either way, it could be beneficial for these folks. Um, if, you know, refractory and these persistent seizures are really rare, if they do have them, um, you know, benzos at one point are not going to work. This is a good time to segue into using barbs. I like phenobarb personally. 
load them up with some phenobarb. Um, and at this point, you know, your patient is either heading to, if they're not already intubated, you know, you can use propofol as a nice adjunctive to that as well. Um, I will say, you know, as far as seizures, I have one, you know, caveat of like one thing to avoid, uh, avoid phenytoin at all costs in these situations because you no know, phenytoin has that, you know, it has that sodium channel blockade effect. You have the diluent and the drug itself that may be causing some problems. Um, so you're making a bad situation worse in the presence of a drug that's potentially very cardiac uh, toxic. I've had anecdotally, I've had, you know, a handful of cases in fellowship um, where the teams have used it in, you know, in a toxic overdose ingestion, the patient arrests, and then you get the patient back and they have like an EF of like 15 or 20 and it's permanent and you're just like, you're just blown away. And this is why, you know, in toxicology with, you know, with any toxic uh, overdose exposure for like almost, you know, 99% of the time, phenytoin is a no-no. Um, as far as kind of, you know, monitoring and obsing these folks, if you're dealing with, you know, the, the formulations matter, and that's why the history is always important. Um, if I have a patient that comes in and they're asymptomatic, um, I'll do probably about a 12-hour OBS time. Um, if it's the XL formulation, I'll give them a 24-hour OBS time. That's because we've had seizures occur up to 24 hours after uh, the XL formulation has been ingested. Basic monitoring parameters, vital signs. Um, you know, any kind of CNS excitation, you know, like we talked about the, the tremors, the agitation, all that stuff, um, and any kind of seizures, get them on a cardiac monitor, get a, an, an EKG as well. Always get, a, you know, I always harp on this too, get an acetaminophen and um, a salicylate level and a pregnancy test if you have a woman of childbearing age. I can't tell you how many times I've had a double whammy from all three of those things. Um, they happen when you have these intentional ingestions. Um, and just, you know, keep in mind that, you know, if you have this ops period, once that patient becomes symptomatic, they are now in your care until they are not symptomatic. That's a big thing. And that's a big question I get a lot from you know, ED docs and people on the floor. How long do I have to watch until so they are not symptomatic once they become symptomatic? Um, but, you know, if you have a patient, you know, in your ops period at the end of it, they look good. Um, you know, they're generally, you know, medically clear from that standpoint, if you've had no symptoms with those formulations in that time period. Um, and I usually, you know, if it's an intentional ingestion, I always try to make sure um, to get behavioral health and psych involved to make sure the patient's evaluated before they go home, because we want to try to avoid this from happening again. Okay. Well, again, I think you kind of hit all this in the Elbutrin episode. It's going to definitely be, be, be down for us, but it just seems to be a lot of different stuff to consider. We talked about ECMO. We talked about laughs. Uh, we talked about uh, just getting lipids and I mean, and doing all the things we can to get a good history. I think that's something we should probably start doing a little bit more. It's just an ED pharmacy and just in general, getting a better, better, better history. But any closing words for you? Man, just uh, like I said, history, history, history is always important. It's going to matter for the formulation on these folks. We um, get seizing, GABA, GABA A, hit it. Um, and then if you're thinking about, you know, we talked about GI decontamination. If you think you have those big ingestions, call poison control. We're there 24-7. We're more than happy to kind of help assess what's going on with your patient. We can help guide those therapies if, if they need to be used. Perfect. Well, I thank you for coming on. Everything's going to be in the show notes, guys. And we're going to close out the same way we close every episode, guys. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You have to work in the ED. But everything you do, make sure you pump so hard.